All right, today we are in chapter 7, predominantly, but we're going to start in chapter 6, uh, verse 53. And um, uh, this, is, this is one of these studies. Did you, did you spend some time working on it? Okay. This is one of these, these chapters where you go, huh? I mean, what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? What is going on here? And, uh, but as we dig through it, I think it's going to really um, kind of come together for you. So it starts in 53. Somebody read for me uh, 53 through verse 5. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, <coughs> people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, in the villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the, head, the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? All right. So, did you notice a word that is repeated in this passage? Unclean. Okay, we certainly are going to deal with the issue of unclean. Yeah. Tradition. Tradition is going to be important. We're going to talk about tradition. Sick. Sick. All these people were sick. He was healing. The word marketplace. The word marketplace is only used in the whole book, like right here. And it's used twice. And um, as you're reading through it, it it's a little bit striking when you stop and think about it. In the first instance, we have a discussion about what's going on with Jesus when he goes through the marketplace. What's it like when Jesus goes through the marketplace? Okay, we've got crowds of people. And there are a lot of that are sick. And they're pressing in. And they're touching Jesus. And he's healing them. That last sentence for me stuck out because they just needed to touch his cloak. They had heard about the woman. Right. The story had spread everywhere about the woman. All she had to do was touch his cloak. That's right. And so before, Jesus stopped and he said, power has gone out from me. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus 
um, in many ways, we've seen kind of uh, individual healings. That's kind of been a, the focus. Um, here, we see this almost like it's wholesale. It's like it's gone Amazon on us, right? You know, now all of a sudden, um, people are just pressing in, and Jesus' power seems to be going out. It's like this, this whole movement is amplifying, isn't it? Okay? And so all that's happening. All this is happening in the marketplace. Now, we have the word marketplace mentioned again in the beginning of chapter 7. And it's mentioned in a whole different context. What is the context of the other mention of the, of the marketplace? Huh? They're eating. Okay, these are the rules and regulations. And so, who are we talking about here, and in, in specifically? The Pharisees. Okay, so what happens when the Pharisees walk through the marketplace? They get dirty. They get dirty. Why do they get dirty? Because they come in contact They come in contact with uncleanness, right? The great unwashed masses, right? And so they walk through the marketplace and they may brush up against someone who's been sick with a bleeding ulcer underneath all their robes and garments and things. Now they're contaminated, right? They may brush up against a Gentile, right? They may brush up in the process. Uh, something may be handed to them that was that came in contact with food that was prepared in the wrong way, right? All of these things. There may be someone who had been in contact with a dead body and was now in the marketplace, right? All these different things, all these ways that they can become contaminated. So what do you think is the posture of the Pharisee as he walks through the marketplace? Don't touch me. Don't touch me. Right? So he's going through the marketplace like this. Don't touch me. Now, how is Jesus walking through the marketplace? Relax. He's being touched by everyone, and he's touching them. And you see the difference? Do you see what's going on here? So Jesus... We see this contrast between the two of them. The way that they're interacting with the people. They are both the shepherds, right? The shepherds of Israel. These are the old shepherds and these are the new shepherds. You see the different model that Jesus is presenting? The old shepherds go through the marketplace and they're, they're resisting the crowd. They're trying not to touch the crowd. Look at what their rules and regulations have done to their mission. Right? Their job was to be the shepherds of the people. But because of their rules and regulations, what happened? Hands off. It turned things upside down, didn't it? So instead of their religious practices 
helping them and facilitating the ministry that they were supposed to be doing, it actually inhibited the ministry that they were supposed to be doing. So their religion had turned things upside down. Is this marketplace they're talking about over in the Decapolis? This is any marketplace. This is speaking okay. in general as Jesus is moving through the towns. Okay? And so what's interesting is the same word is used. Now we get a, we get a chapter break in the middle of it. Right? And so when we see a chapter break, we go, lights off. Right? Totally separate. But they're right next to each other in the Greek text. Okay? And so this... The use of this word, which is a rather strange word, it doesn't show up very often, and it shows up twice in the context. And so I think we've got a very clear comparison, okay? This, is, this starts off this discussion of clean and unclean, all right? And I think it's really significant. You know, as I was reading this, I was struck by the uh, correlation or, or the similarity what we see today with all this uh, woke stuff that uh, some people are, you know, if you don't think like I do, you're going to get canceled, you're, you're not a good person, and uh, it's the same idea, just a slightly different right. approach. Well, it's, it's interesting, because what happens? Culture goes to one extreme or the other, and both of them are wrong, right? So we have racism on one side, which segregates us from the people that we need to be reaching, right? And then on the other side, we have this wokeness that's creating the same kind of division just on the other side, right? Um, and we get, we get lost. We lose the vision of what God's called us to be and what he's called us to do, and that's to bring, to, to reach people, to touch people. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so now this whole idea, the Pharisees and the Jews, this parenthetical statement in verse 3 that runs through verse 4, what does that tell you, Hermen hermeneutically speaking? What, was that added? Uh, was that added? It is, it's, it's parenthetical in the text, but it's not added. It's original. Okay, it's an explanation to people who don't understand Jewish culture. So what does that tell us about the original audience? That they were not necessarily Jews. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't bother to give this information, this background information, if they were Jews. And so, see, this is how we discover a little bit about the original audience, which is, of course, important to us as students of the Bible. We're trying to figure out who this book was originally written to. And uh, here we've got clear evidence, clear internal evidence, that this was, at, at the very minimum, a mixed audience um, with, enough Jew, with enough Gentile influence <laughs> that something this basic needed to be explained. Okay? And uh, so it, there we have the explanation. And I think the explanation is important here because he's, going, he's really highlighting this. So cups and pitchers and bowls have to be washed. All these things have to be washed. And don't think about it in terms of cleanliness. This has nothing to do with germs, right? Germs weren't discovered until what, the 1800s, right? So none of this cleanliness had nothing to do with soap and water and, um, and, and the idea of germs and contamination as we understand it. This is religious contamination. This is ritual uncleanness, okay? And the Old Testament declared certain things and certain people and certain stuff unclean. 
And um, the Jews had taken this to the maximum. Uh, why? Because they were a minority group trying to maintain their identity in a sea of, Gentile, of the Gentile world, right? They were exiled into the Gentile world, into the Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and they were trying to maintain their identity as a people. And one of the ways that they did that was by focusing on the command, come out and be separate from them, right? And so they tried to maintain their separateness and their Jewish uh, um, customs about food and contact and all of this thing became paramount for them because it was a way to isolate them and insulate themselves from the world around them. In some ways, think Amish, right? You know, how have the Amish people maintained their identity in the midst of a world that has amalgamated and enculturated all around them? They stay away from the world. Well, they've done so. And I mean, they, I mean, you go, they, they have created certain walls and certain rules and regulations that maintain their separateness from the culture around them. And in doing so, they've preserved their culture. Uh, but it also doesn't make them very evangelistic, right? It's separated them from people. Uh, okay? And, and, and so we see that, and, and they get... Um, isolated by it and and this was this was intentional but it had unintentional circumstances right or consequences i should say not circumstances all right so now the pharisees and the teachers of the law asked jesus why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating the food uh eating their food with defiled hands why why are they doing this they ask um what are the traditions of the elders? Just generally. Man-made rules. Okay, so what do we have? We have the law, right? We have, you could say we have the Big Ten. We have the Big Ten, right? That came down off the mountain on the, on the stone tablets. And then around that, we have uh, all of the other laws of the Old Testament, okay? Which kind of amplify the Big Ten, which are at the heart of it. And then around that, what had happened was another set of rules and regulations were created. And these are the traditions. of the elders or the rabbis. These are the rabbinic traditions, which are later encoded in the Mishnah and all of this, okay? And they are this elaborate, this elaborate, um, I don't know, web of laws, of regulations, that the idea was, here's you, right, out here. This is you outside here, and if you keep all of these laws and all of these traditions, then you'll never, you may break a few of these, right? You, your sin might break a few of these, and you'll get a couple of cracks that'll go like this into the, into the traditions, but you'll never actually reach the big stuff. 
Okay, you won't actually break the, the, the real law at the heart of it. That was the, that was the concept, that was the idea, okay? But what Jesus' point is, is that all of this stuff is man-made. And it is, what it has done is it, is, has, it has become for you the true law and in many ways has perverted the real law that God had intended you to keep. Okay, I'm sorry, um, what, what are the laws that magnify the big ten? Well, there are other laws that are written, Leviticus. the Levitical Leviticus. laws and, you know, the sacrificial laws and all the other, there are like 156 more laws that are written in the Old Testament beside the big ten. Now, were right? those given by God? Yes, those yeah, because yeah, they're in inspired Arcana. scripture. Part of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, well, they're not in the Ark. The Big Ten were in the Ark, but the, they are they are in the they're in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Right. They're all part of the law. So they're part of the. Whereas the other things were interpretation of the law by the rabbis. The yeah, it's how many feet you can walk on a Sabbath day. It's yeah. it's you know what are all of these things they tried to define what it means to break the law so that it would be measurable and. Then they, then they set the boundaries out even farther with the idea that, you know, if you keep these regulations, you won't actually ever break these laws. And you can be perfect if you keep these traditions, right? That's the idea, okay? That's what they're trying to accomplish. But Jesus now rebukes them. Why? Because they're saying, why haven't your disciples lived according to the traditions of the elders by not washing their hands after they come from the marketplace. And Jesus said, don't even get into it with me. All right? Because he's got in mind exactly what we were talking about here, this comparison between the postures of the two shepherds in the marketplace. Don't you corrupt my new shepherds with your philosophies that have driven you away from the people. Okay? So Jesus unloads both barrels. It's like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, you hypocrite, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. He continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to absorb, observe your own tradition. So you've set aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And so Jesus is going to give them an example. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what he has might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down, and many such things you do. All right? Okay. So, let's talk about this issue of korban. What is it? What does it mean? Did anybody look it up? Or... What is it? Uh, 
that's above all the other gifts, and then when their parents get old, they can go to the welfare of the <coughs> church, or the temple, rather than the fella, or woman, or I guess it would be fella, have to take care of the parents. Well, they think they're getting credit by, <laughs> by giving all this extra to the church, that it's going to cover everything and, and make them, you know, but. Right. And in essence, it is. Okay. So I got my dad. He's 90 years old. And it's my responsibility, according to the law, to care for my father. Right. And what if me and my dad have a fight and I don't want to care for him anymore? Guy's a pain in the neck. Right. I don't care for him anymore. So what, what, how can I get past this? Well, the rabbis had come up with a plan. They said, if you give money to the temple, you know, a certain amount will negotiate a price, okay? And then you give that money to us. Temple's all about making money. When you give that money to us, then we will declare that you have fulfilled your legal obligation to care for your parents, and then your parents can come to the temple, and they had welfare programs at the temple, which we see in the book of Acts, called the, you know, there, were the, they were a, there was a daily and a weekly dole to people who were in need, or foreigners who were visiting, or widows and, uh, and people like that, and so they would provide for them through the, the alms that were given at the temple. And so the temple would assume your responsibility to care for your parents. And then you are absolved. And Jesus says, you have just nullified the commandment with your traditions. You've turned it upside down. Okay? So it's a great example of what Jesus means. Yes? And the temple would probably give them something like macaroni and cheese and not lamb. Exactly, right. So instead of being cared for by your son or daughter in, an, in a way that is dignified, you would be given the minimum care that uh, the poor, the anonymous poor would be given. Exactly. So now, Jesus makes a reference to an Old Testament scripture. And what is that Old Testament scripture? Isaiah 29.13. Did anybody look up Isaiah 29.13? Well, I'm glad that you did. Isaiah 29:13. Now, when Jesus makes reference to a verse in the Bible like Isaiah 29:13, um, what is his intention? Is he just referring to that one verse? No, may it never be. God forbid, right? It is a reference to the entire section. Okay? So let's read it. These people come near me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. Who's been doing wonder upon wonder? Jesus. Jesus. The wisdom of the wise will perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Who's he talking about there? Pharisees. Pharisees. Good. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. <laughs> who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? Who's doing that? Pharisees. Pharisees. Everything that's hidden will be revealed, Jesus said. Okay, now Jesus 
makes this quote to Isaiah 29:13. And what do the immediate what happens immediately in the mind of a Pharisee? They see the whole picture. They see the whole passage. Because they've memorized it all. It's in their phylactery, stuck on their head, right? And so immediately they begin to run through this passage. And as they read it, it's an accusation against them. It's all the things that they've been doing. Then look at verse 16. You turn things upside down. Right? That's exactly what they've done. You've turned things upside down. As if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say the one who formed it? You cannot make me? Did you not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And isn't that exactly what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, who is their maker, right? He is God himself. And they're trying to tell him, you know, tell your disciples to wash their hands. And Jesus is like, who are you? Very interesting. Keep a thumb in Isaiah 29. We're not done with it yet. All right? So let's go back to Mark. Oh, Mark. Incidentally, there's a similar uh, reference in Ezekiel. Similar reference in Ezekiel. 31. Okay. Read 33, it. 33-31. Uh-huh. He goes on quite a bit longer, but it, it's the same idea you've been talking Same about. idea, yeah. A lot of parallels in Ezekiel with Isaiah. I've been reading some Psalms, and they have, you know, kind of the good and the bad, too. So yeah. After he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. Okay? Listen to me, he said, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile him, but what goes into him is what defiles him. And Jesus says, what do you mean you don't understand? Again, we're back to this inside-outside, right? Those on the outside don't understand. Those on the inside do because they have Jesus to explain it to them. All right? Not that they're sharper. Are you so dull, he says? Don't you see nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach. Um, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declares all food clean. Isn't it interesting that this is Peter's perspective? And Peter later is probably thinking back on this teaching of Jesus after he saw the sheet that comes down from heaven in Acts chapter 9, right? And he's like... That little aside is for the Jews. Exactly. And he went on. When comes, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, <gasps> arrogance, folly, and all these evil things come from inside of a person and defile a person. Okay? So Jesus is saying that defilement isn't about the outside of the cup. It's about what's in the cup. Okay? You guys are busy washing pots and kettles and cups. And that has nothing to do. It's what's on the inside that defiles you. Okay? And then comes out of your heart. And it's all of these things. Okay? Sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful things. Those are the things that defile you before God. God could care less about the cup that you 
that you drink out of or even the food that you eat. That doesn't make a difference in your spiritual life. Don't you get it? Okay, so you see how Jesus is changing the paradigm for his disciples. But when I was going through this, I realized that in a sense it was what they had fed on. Yes. They had fed on worldly things. Yes. I mean, how did that heart get in that state? Yes. Because it was what they had focused on, power, money, whatever it is. Of. Absolutely. Yep. They were feeding on things. But these are spirit. That's spiritual, right? And Jesus is saying it's, this is a spiritual matter. It's not a physical matter. Physical defilement can't affect your spiritual condition. Vice versa. Physical cleansing of your hands isn't going to change your heart. You guys are busy taking care of your bodies, keeping it clean, but what you've done is you've violated the very heart of the law, the very heart of the command of God. All right? All right. Now, we, now we've got to talk about the Syrophoenician woman. My goodness. <laughs> this is all very important to understand because if you don't understand this context, you cannot interpret correctly the Syrophoenician woman because this is a weird passage okay so Jesus is down here at the Sea of Galilee correct and what happens he travels to where Tyre. he travels to Tyre okay um, which is a coastal city in where Okay, so it goes to Lebanon, and he's in Tyre. And what is his plan when he's in Tyre? What's he planning to do? Hide. 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 Okay, he's planning to get some time alone with his disciples. And this is something that they needed, right? Um, uh, because they were tired, and they still haven't had a chance to get a break, even since the time that they went out and ministered. Um, uh, as, as two by two when Jesus sent them out. And so they go all the way to Tyre. It's 35 mile walk to Tyre. Okay, long walk. They get to Tyre and they're kind of thinking, think what, get in the mind of the disciples. Why are we going to Tyre? We hate that place. It's full of Gentiles. I mean, we, there are other places to hide, Jesus. We don't have to walk 35 miles to Tyre. Okay, And so they're going. They're following Jesus, but they don't really get it. They get there, and they're in Tyre. Okay, we're in Tyre. We don't like Tyre. Okay? And then into the, the room where they're, where they're staying. I don't know if there's a conference room at the Motel 6 or what's going on. And this woman bursts into the room. Right? Tell me about this woman. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She has an evil spirit. Okay, she's a woman. She's a Gentile. She has an unclean spirit in her daughter. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. What else? What else do we know about her? 
She must believe that he has healing power. She's got to believe. Okay? She's alone. Okay? Nobody else comes and advocates for her. She is a woman coming to a man, to a foreigner, alone. That indicates she has no husband around. She has no father to be her covering, to be her protection, to go and advocate for her. Okay? When we read about the Syrophoenician woman, what does it remind us of? No, because that's not Mark. Well, oh. <laughs> In Mark, what does it remind us of? Jairus. Jairus, right? Yeah. And, and the woman with the issue of blood. You take those two stories and you put them together and you begin to think, okay, there's a lot of similarities here, right? This woman comes and she bows down before Jesus, just like Jairus did, just like the woman did. She's like the woman. She is alone, just like the woman with the issue of blood. Um, she is unclean, right? Because her daughter has an unclean spirit, so she's been in contact with her daughter, which makes her unclean, okay? Just as this woman with the issue of blood was unclean because of the bleeding that she had, which made her unclean. This woman is a Gentile, and, and she's a woman, which all of that does not add up to much. How are the disciples going to view her? <laughs> Not favorably. <laughs> now, Dan, you assume she doesn't have a husband or a father. Could she just be a brazen woman, though? No. Not in that culture. No, that's what I'm asking. Not in that culture. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like Afghanistan. It's like places that we see now. You know, women, a woman wouldn't go to Jesus, to a man, especially an unknown man like this, a Jew, a rabbi, a person of a power that has the potential to really, I mean, to really insult her and dismiss her and even, you know, even physically abuse her. All would have been within Jesus' right to do. And so a man would have gone and advocated for her if there was one, okay? So I think we're 95% sure that this woman is alone. She has no one to stand for her, or she, that person would be there in her place. Okay? The disciples would have seen her as inferior. They would have seen her as a... Yes, a waste of time. Right? <coughs> Um, they would have gone, oh my gosh, before it was 5,000 people show up when we try to get along with Jesus, now it's you. Get out of here, lady. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're trying to have time alone with the master. Can't you see? We are important and you are not. Okay? They, are, they have the same mentality that Jairus has toward the woman who stands in the way of him getting Jesus to his daughter. Right? This would be the attitude of the disciples. Jesus makes a statement here that is, if nothing else, troubling. Verse 27. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Does this sound like Jesus? Does this sound like the Jesus that you want to follow, who would intentionally insult a woman like this, a woman who comes to him in need, and then he, he, throw, he pulls this on her? I don't understand what it means, though, so I don't... 
first let the children eat all they want. In other words, the bread belongs to the children. The children are the Jews, not to the Gentiles. For it is it right to take the children's bread, the bread of life that I have to give, and give it to the dogs? This is the way the Jews referred to Gentiles, as dogs. You shouldn't be reading commentaries. What's wrong with you? <laughs> the word he used for dogs was really um, for like the lap dogs, not the wild dogs. There are no lap dogs to a Jew. There would be to a Gentile. But to a Jew, dogs are unclean animals. There are no clean dogs. They could be cute. They could be cuddly. They could be sweet. They're dogs. They're unclean. And apparently there are two words for, there's one for the little dogs and one for You see, I think commentators do all kinds of gyrations with this story because they don't know what to do with this. They don't know what to do with this statement. So they try to parse it out and try to find some magic formula to, to try to change what Jesus says. I'll tell you, we are out of time, so I'm going to tell you what I think. I think Jesus is giving voice to what is in the hearts and minds of the disciples. You see, we know something from Mark because we're careful students of the book of Mark. We know that when Jesus is alone with his disciples, he does weird stuff. He does stuff that is out of the ordinary, things that don't seem to fit with his normal pattern because he wants to teach them and he wants to reveal what is hidden. Remember chapter 5 and the healing of the demoniac. Jesus is alone with his disciples and he interviews a demon and he allows the demon to go into the pigs, right? All of that happens when normally Jesus would just refuse to allow the demons to speak. But Jesus pulls back the curtain for the disciples because he's teaching the disciples. I think Jesus is teaching the disciples and I think he's giving voice to the way they saw this woman. And I think when Jesus says this, the disciples said, yes, amen. <laughs> Finally, Jesus, we're in agreement about one of these situations. That's exactly what we think. This woman is a Gentile. She is a woman. She's unclean. She is abandoned. She's alone. She's inferior to us. She's a waste of our time. Finally, Jesus, you've called her out. But Jesus says this. He calls the outside of the cup exactly the way they saw it. But what is the woman's response? I'm a person too. She says, for such a re She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's a Gentile and she called him Lord. She says, I understand that you are the Lord. I understand that you're powerful. And I understand that even a crumb of the bread that you have for the children. And I understand that it first goes to the Jews. But even a crumb that falls from the table is enough. And Jesus says, see what's inside? See what's inside her heart? What's inside her heart is faith. And Jesus says, that's what matters. It's not what's on the outside. You see how this story is linked with the teaching that has been going on through the whole chapter. And your commentators, they're trying to parse it out and figure it out without looking at it in the context of what's being said. And I, and I, why is the dog under the table if it's not a 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, certainly she would have a different concept of a dog than a, a Jewish rabbi and Jewish disciples would have. But for them, no matter what the dog looks like, no matter where the dog is, it is an, an unclean well, we animal. That she wasn't insulted because I don't think he would insult someone Jesus does strange things in private with his disciples because he wants to teach them. And I think what he's doing is he, his first statement is like a rabbi. It addresses the outside. And he brings what is hidden inside the disciples' heart to the, to the forefront. And then she speaks and reveals what is hidden inside of her. And Jesus says, that's the kingdom. Do you see the difference? Could Jesus be referring to the Pharisees as dogs too? I, guess? I, I think he's he's going right back to the message he had just done. He said, it's not what you take in. It, it's what makes you unclean is it, what's already inside you. This this woman is considered unclean because she's a Gentile, because she's a woman, because she's around demons. He's saying no. It's, right. it's that faith that and, and he doesn't even have to go and see the girl. He says, this is what I'm looking for. That's why I came to Tyre. Right. This woman to show that uh, it, it's faith in him, not faith in tradition or washing or, or whatever. Yes, I agree. And so, do you, but do you see now how it makes sense? If it makes sense, if you look at it in all of the things that Jesus has been teaching all the way through this section, if you try to just figure out what Jesus is saying in the uh, in the isolation of this one event, Jesus being Jesus, wouldn't he wouldn't he have known how she would respond? Yes, of course, because he wants to reveal what's hidden. Now, don't run away yet. We're we're almost finished. Okay, so where does Jesus go next? This geography is important. Sidon. He goes to Sidon. Sidon. That's closer to the Sea of Galilee, right? Mm -hmm. No! It's, it's 25 north. miles yeah. to the north. Then where does he go? Sea of Galilee. Now he goes to the Decapolis, which basically <laughs> means that he comes over here to the Hula Valley. This is the Hula Valley. <laughs> the whole valley goes right, it's this valley that runs from the north of the Sea of Galilee up to Mount Hermon. Okay? It's the beginning of the Great Rift Valley. So Jesus would have traveled across, come down the Hula Valley, and then here to the Decapolis. 85 miles. Wow. Yeah. The disciples. How do you think the disciples felt as they made this trek? What are we doing, Jesus? Why are we doing this? Why are we traveling? First, we come to Tyre. That wasn't a great idea. Now, in order to get back to the Sea of Galilee, we travel. We could have just walked 35 miles back, but instead, we walk another 110 miles. What is Jesus doing? Through Gentile territory. I think what Jesus is doing is he is desensitizing his disciples. Okay? You know, if you have a fear, what do people say? Face, Face your fear, yeah. right? Deal with it. If you're afraid of heights, what do they say? Get out there on the balcony and stand on the edge. Mm. 
After a while, you're going to start getting better. I, rem- I used to paint houses for a living, okay? I remember being up on a scaffolding three stories up over a city sidewalk. And I was shaking like a leaf. I was like, you know, scared to death. But after a while, I got used to it, right? After a while, you get desensitized to that fear. What is Jesus doing with the disciples? He takes them on a trek all the way through Gentile territory. 110 miles where they've got to stay in the homes of Gentiles, where they've got to eat food that could be contaminated, where they could have walked across graves, where they're doing all of these things that for them as Jews would have been terrible, would have been uncomfortable. And he's beginning to break that down in them. Why? Because ultimately their job is to reach the entire world. And Jesus at some point is not going to be with them, right? And he's got to begin to build this into them. This whole chapter is about reaching the Gentile world. When he returns, he doesn't return to Jewish Galilee. He returns to Gentile Decapolis. And who does he encounter in Decapolis? A deaf mute. Okay? Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus encounters... These miracles are not just miracles. You have to ask the question, why does Mark, in his 16 chapters, highlight this miracle? Jesus did lots of miracles. Why does he choose this miracle at this time? What does he want to tell us about it? Here's a man who can't hear. Remember chapter 4? The sower goes to sow the seed. Jesus says, listen, hear. Shema. Right? The sower goes to sow the seed, and the seed falls on all kinds of soil. And then it grows, and that and the other, and all the things happen, right? And then he says, for him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus walks into Gentile territory, and he comes across a man who can't hear. Presumably a Gentile man who can't hear and can't speak. And what does Jesus do? He restores his hearing. And Jesus says, I can make anyone hear. Jew or Gentile. If I bring hearing to someone, then they can enter the kingdom, right? Anyone who can hear, let them hear, okay? If I have called Gentiles to be my followers and I have granted them the, the ability to hear, then who are you to say that they can't be part of the kingdom, right? There was a, there was a popular belief that deafness was called by, caused by demonic spirits. And the only way to heal deafness was to interview the demon, find out who he was, cast out the demon, and then the hearing would be returned. So a deaf mute could never be restored because he could never tell you who the demon was. You couldn't get enough information to effectively cast out the demon. Only the Messiah could cast out a deaf mute demon. And that's why the people said he's done everything well. Because Jesus is able, he just walks up to him. And I love the, all the detail that we have here about this healing. Did you notice the rich detail? Jesus looks into heaven, he sighs, ephaphtha, he says. I can just, this was a significant miracle for Peter. He, he obviously recounted this with great detail because of its significance to him. 
All right, we're out of time seven and eight minutes ago. Um, Dan, one, one quick yeah. question. You, you mentioned about the circuitous loop. Yeah. You know, and if, if they're walking a decent pace of three miles an hour, that gives a lot of hours on the road where Jesus can have one-on-one, one-on-two conversations with the 12 um, and, and the time alone that they weren't getting in the cities to getting out on the road. That's right. Absolutely. I think Jesus uses it as a means to debrief his disciples. It, it is spiritual rest, if not physical rest, this traveling. There's all kinds of reasons for it. But I think Jesus is also bringing them through a place where for them as Jews would have been very uncomfortable, right? But Jesus is breaking that down within them because one day they're going to go all the way to Rome. They have no idea of that yet. But I think this is beginning that process of changing their hearts. You see, it's like wax on, wax off. Remember that movie? (laughs) Right? He's building the muscles in them to create the new categories in their hearts and in their minds so that they can effectively carry out the the mission to the Gentiles. I'm sure they get Gentiles. Like when the disciples of John the Baptist said, John said, are you really the Messiah? He said, do the deaf hear? Do the the mute speak? Thank you for saying that. One second. Don't leave. Go back to Isaiah (laughs) chapter 29. Isaiah 29, verse 17. We just finished the potter. You turn things upside down. Can the potter um, say to the clay, you have formed me, the whole thing. In verse 17, it says, In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? What just happened? This woman demonstrates fertility, right? She is fertile ground. She is good soil. And the fertile field seems like a forest. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. That's the next miracle we'll see is the eyes of the blind being healed. So we see that Mark uses chapter 29 in some ways, as a paradigm to structure his story about Jesus. It's a fulfillment. Pretty cool. <laughs>